This will be a reading of The Life of Christ by Fulton J. Sheen, Ph.D., D.D. Printed by Doubleday. By the Most Vener Reverend Fulton Sheen. Here's a quick table of contents, which is very interesting. Title page, dedication, forward to the new edition, introduction to the new edition, preface, chapter one. There's 62 chapters. Chapter one. The only person ever pre-announced. Chapter 2. Early life of Christ. Chapter 3. The three shortcuts from the cross. 4. The Lamb of God. Chapter 5. The beginning of, quote, the hour, unquote. Chapter 6, the temple of his body. Chapter 7, Nicodemus, the serpent, and the cross. Chapter 8, Savior of the world. Chapter 9, the first public announcement of his death. Chapter 10. The Choosing of the Twelve. Chapter 11. Beatitudes. Chapter 12. The Intruder, who was a woman, Chapter 13, The Man Who Lost His Head. Chapter 14, The Bread of Life. Chapter 15, The Refusal to Be a Bread King. Chapter 16, Purity and property. Chapter 17 The Lord's Testimony Concerning Himself Chapter 18 Transfiguration Chapter 19 The Three Quarrelings Chapter 20 the attempted arrest at the Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter 21. Only the innocent may condemn. Chapter 22. The Good Shepherd. Chapter 23. The Son of Man. Chapter 24. Caesar, 
or God. Chapter 25 His hour had not yet come. Chapter 26 The mightiest arrow in the divine quiver. Chapter 27 More than a teacher. Chapter 28 The pagans and the cross. Chapter 29. The growing opposition. Chapter 30. The fox and the hen. Chapter 31. The resurrection that prepared his death. Chapter 32, The Woman Who Dimly Foresaw His Death. Chapter 33, Entrance Into Jerusalem. Chapter 34, The Visit of the Greeks. Chapter 35, the king's son marked for death. Chapter 36. The Last Supper. Chapter 37. The Servant of the Servants. Chapter 38. Judas. Chapter 39, The Divine Lover's Farewell. Chapter 40, Our Lord's, quote, My Father, unquote. Chapter 41, The Agony in the Garden. Chapter 42, The Clip. <clears throat> the kiss that blistered. 43. The religious trial. 44. The denials of Peter. 45. Trial before Pilate. 46. At the bottom of the list. 47. Second trial before Pilate. 48. The crucifixion. 49. The seven words from the cross. 50. Seven words to the cross. 51. The rendering of the veil of the temple. 52. The piercing of the side. 53. 
the night friends of Christ. 54. The earth's most serious wound. The empty tomb. 55. The doors being closed. 56. Fingers, hands, and nails. 57. Love as the condition of authority. 58. The divine mandate. 59. Last appearance in Jerusalem. 60. Repentance. 61. The Ascension. 62. Christ takes on a new body. <gasps> Last item. Copyright. Page 8. Page 9. Dedication in Filial affection to Mary, the triple author. First, as mother, who didst give to the Son of the living God a body with which he borrowed human guilt and paid back death with life. And last, as author with the Spirit of Christ in each reader's heart, acting on each page as the sweet incendiary of that love we fall just short of all love. Page 10. Forward to the new edition. We'll be right back with that. Forward to the new edition, the replication of Archbishop Sheen's classic work, Life of Christ, brings back memories of 60 years ago when the streets of any Catholic town or village were absolutely empty at 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoons. As a child, I used to look outside to see if anyone was in view because an eerie silence fell over the whole community. Everybody was listening to Archbishop Sheen on the radio. Later, when he moved on to television, he became certainly the most popular Catholic preacher in American church history. He also relentlessly attacked the Bolshevik communism and 
Freudian psychoanalysts. Yeah, my kind of man. Many people in the intellectual community thought this was amusing, but both of these powerful movements have since gone into dustbins of history. Meanwhile, <laughs> Archbishop Sheen's beautiful meditation on the life of Christ are coming out in a new edition. Why? Because although he did not ignore contemporary biblical scholarship and, in fact, relied for advice on the well-known scripture scholar Monsignor Miles Bork. B-O-U-R-K-E. Hey, Miles, I miss you. M-Y-L-E-S. Praying for Miles. C-D-B-O. He nonetheless did not do biblical criticism. Come in. He brought the narrative of the gospel alive to the individual reader. Is this wrong? Um, n- n- no, it's pro- it's ham on the but it's roasted. They couldn't cut it like this if it wasn't already cooked. Okay. But I would heat it, re- reheat it, either do like I did on the, with the bacon on the toaster pan, uh-huh. or on the oyster. Okay. So if you're just doing a simple sandwich, I would just lay like two of these nicely on the toaster pan and heat it back up. I know, you gotta be really, really careful. Find a way to super glue it. I don't know, just, I always have to do the bottom and the top, just be really extra gentle on it. Don't, don't let the lid carry any weight. It's like the left side already, or the other side, that's burnt. Sorry. He brought the narrative of the gospel alive to the individual reader. This is popular biblical theology at its very best. In its recent book, Jesus of Nazareth, Pope Benedict XVI has issued a call for a return to biblical theology and has given a powerful example of it in his own writings. The republication of Life of Christ by Archbishop Sheen is therefore extremely timely. It seems to me that this is precisely the kind of writing that the Pope is hoping for in order to restore devotion to Christ. The Holy Father has said that as a result of the exclusive use of certain forms of scriptural criticism, the figure of Jesus has become more and more remote to many people. This is a tragedy. He identifies, quote, intimate friendship with Jesus, unquote, as the foundation, quote, on which everything depends, unquote, in Christianity. For very few people in modern times have made a greater contribution to Catholic life or have encouraged and led the way toward intimate friendship with Jesus Christ, very people, very few people more than Archbishop Sheen. Life of Christ book by Archbishop Sheen could be a companion volume to the Jesus of Nazareth by Pope Benedict XVI. And I gotta tell you, listeners, I took a quick, um, I tried to find a copy of that, but it was very hard to find. And when I did finally find one page of it, I got to tell you, it's kind of dry, all right? So if you like the more fragrant aroma in your wine, 
I'll stick with Fulton Sheen. I mean, if you've ever seen him talk in an old black and white video, oh my goodness, you just fall in love with him. I love, I love Fulton Sheen. And so does my, my, my God mama, Junior. <laughs> Jen, I love you. Okay. So, Father Benedict Groschel, who doesn't love him, right? J. Groschel, CFR, we love you. For the souls of the faithfully departed, may they rest in peace by the mercy of God. All right, we'll come back with the introduction to the new edition, which I might just skip it over. We'll see. All right, let's take a look at what is new in this new model. Ooh, new edition. You know how cars always come out with a new model? Ooh. And after a while, you're like, I don't know, I kind of like the old one, you know? <laughs> so let's see what is new in this new iPhone with three eyeballs. I feel like I'm a kaleidoscope after a while. I do not have a new iPhone. <laughs> Introduction to the new edition. Without a doubt, Jesus Christ is the most outstanding person in human history. I know, right? Find me a better one. Come on. So overwhelming, so overwhelming that he. So overwhelming is he, is, is, that the Western world has traditionally marked its centuries into two periods of time by the year of his birth, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, from the Latin, in the year of the Lord. Over the centuries, many written, many have written wonderful biographies about Jesus, but very few writers can compare in their works to the late Archbishop Fulton Sheen. <laughs> many, many have approached their writing about Jesus in an intellectual way, trying to grasp the theological content and meaning of his life, and this is good. Others have approached it with the added desire to teach these insights, and this is better. Finally, some have approached the life of Christ in order to live fully his message of salvation, and this is best. No doubt, Archbishop Sheen belonged to this last group. Perhaps no better recommendation could be given to support the value of this religious book than to mention those who read, who would read it. Um, the missionary of Charity Sisters told me that Mother Teresa of Calcutta always had a copy of Archbishop Sheen's Life of Christ with her. Okay, all right. So if, for all you Mother Teresa fans, shout out. How did Archbishop Sheen come to write such a marvelous book that has inspired and enriched Cha-ching, the lives of so many? He was no doubt a very gifted individual. His intellectual abilities were extraordinary, though he never made any attempt to appear scholarly. That's what I love best about him. He's kind of like, right, Dr. Brown from biology, but like... Christ. Besides having a doctorate huh, in theology, he was the first American 
ever to win the prestigious Agrage degree from Louvain University in Belgium. He did so well on the grueling uh, he did so well on the grueling exams that when they celebrated a meal in his honor, something noteworthy happened. You don't say, I do. It's noteworthy. If someone just passed the agrage exam, water was served at the meal. If he or she did a little better, beer was served. If the person did very well, wine was the drink. The drink of choice at young Father Sheen's celebration meal was champagne. <laughs> he went on to receive many other distinct, distinguished awards and honorary degrees throughout his life, including the outstanding Cardinal Messier Prize for International philosophy. The Archbishop also possessed a gift for communicating with others. Another great American evangelist, Billy Graham, right, once called him the great communicator. Not only did he maintain a listening audience about four million people for some 20 years with his weekly radio program, <clears throat> The Catholic Hour, but he achieved phenomenal success with his television series, <clears throat> Life is Worth Living. His weekly live program ran for a half hour, and it was intentionally placed side by side with the man who was called Mr. Television, Milton Burley. Those who invited Archbishop Sheen to present his television program did not think he would do very well against Milton Burley. But within six months, more people were watching the Archbishop's program than were watching Milton Burley. for that first half hour. The Archbishop eventually reached an estimated 30 million viewers. He even won an Emmy in 1952 as the, quote, most outstanding personality on television. At the awards ceremony, many before him were thanking their producers, directors, and screenwriters. When the Archbishop received his Emmy, he humorously remarked, <laughs> I would like to thank my screenwriters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John! <laughs> Exclamation mark. But perhaps the quality that makes Archbishop Sheen's Life of Christ so outstanding is the fact that 
He was a man with a reputation for great holiness. It was one thing to understand the life and message of a person. Another thing, to be able to tell others about it. But it is most significant if one can live that message, especially to an outstanding degree. This is precisely why Archbishop Sheen's life has been promoted for possible sainthood in the Roman Catholic Church. Saints are men and women who imitate Jesus Christ and lived his gospel message to a hero, heroic degree. Saints get to know the gospel from the inside, so to speak, rather than merely as outside observers. Okay, second to the last paragraph on page 12. People who have read Arch... Oh, there he goes. I knew it. Okay, we'll be right back. Baby. All right. I need to relax a little. Need a little relaxing reading. All right, so let's hang out with the sheen. I love the sheen. Charlie got netting on Fulton. <laughs> Sorry, like me both, but Fulton. Oh. History is full of men who have claimed that they came from God or that they were gods that they came from God or were gods or that they bore messages from God Buddha Muhammad Confucius Christ Lao Tzu Lao Tzu and thousands of others right down to the person who founded a new religion this very new day each of them has a right to be heard and considered but as a yardstick external to and outside of whatever is to be measured is needed so there must be some permanent tests available to all men right all civilizations and all ages come on there must be right by which they can decide whether any one of these Claimants, or all of them, are justified in their claims. All right, I'll give you two. These tests are of two kinds. Reason and history. Hmm. Reason, why? Because everyone has it. Do we do? <laughs> I know, right? Sometimes you... Wonder, but yes, reason, because everyone has it. Even those without faith. Right? Number two, history. History, because everyone lives in it. Uh-huh. Reality? Well, and should know something about it. Something. The more the better. Yeah. Yeah. How good is your telescope? Eh, and microscope. Yeah. 
reason dictates that if any one of these men actually came from God, the least thing that God could do to comfort his claim, I'm sorry, could help, could do to support his claim, would be to pre-announce his coming, wouldn't you think? <laughs> like any good automatic, automotive manufacturer tells their customers when to expect a new model. Well, look at that. If God sent anyone from himself, or if he came himself with a vitally important message for all men, it would seem reasonable that he would first let men know when his messenger was coming, where he would be born, where he would live, the doctrine he would teach, the enemies he would make, the program he would adopt for the future. And cherry on top, the manner of his death. But the extent to which the messenger conformed with these announcements, mm -hmm. one could judge the validity of his claims. Aha, validity of his claims. One could judge, one could judge the validity of his claims. All right, let's go back to reason for a second. Reason. Reason further assures us all right, that if God did not do this, then there would be nothing to prevent any imposter from appearing in history and saying, Oh, I come from God. Or an angel appeared to me in the desert and gave me this message. Period. Unquote. In such cases, there would be no objective historical way of testing the messenger. We would have only his word for it. And of course, he could be wrong. Let's say we're in Washington, D.C. and a visitor came from a foreign country to the capital and he said, I'm a diplomat. You're a diplomat? I'm a diplomat. The government has asked me for his passport and other documents testifying that he represented a certain government. His papers would have to antedate his coming. A-N-T-E-D-A-T-E. Antedate his coming. If such proofs of identity are asked from delegates of other countries. Reasons certainly ought to do so with messengers who claim to have come from God. To each claimant, reason says, 
What record was there before you were born that you were coming? <laughs> With this test, one can evaluate the claimants. With this preliminary stage, Christ is no greater than others. Socrates had no one to foretell his birth. Buddha had no one to pre-announce him and his message or tell the day when he would sit under the tree. Confucius did not have the name of his mother and his birthplace pre, I'm sorry, birthplace recorded. Got it. Nor were they given to men centuries before he arrived, so that when he did come, men would know he was a messenger from God. But with Christ, it is different. How? Because of the Old Testament prophecies. <laughs> he was a Jew. <laughs> Israelite or Jew? I don't know. Do you know his His coming was not unexpected. Oh, no, no, no. There were no predictions about Buddha, Confucius, Lao Tzu, Mohammed, or anyone else. But there were predictions about Christ. What? Oh, yeah. Others just came and said, here I am. Believe me. Yeah, whatever. Words are cheap. They were therefore only men among men and not the divine in the human. Christ alone stepped up of that line. Slim Shady saying, search the writings of the Jewish people. In the related history of the Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and Romans. Oh, yeah. He said all that. Go ahead. Do it. Unquote. For the moment, pagan writings and even the Old Testament may be regarded as historical documents, not as inspired works. For the moment. Okay, pagan writings and even Old Testament may be regarded as historical documents, not as inspired works for the moment. It is true that the prophecies of the Old Testament can be best understood in the light of their fulfillment, right? It's like the second part of the movie where you go, ah, oh, the language of prophecy does not have the exactness of mathematics. Yet, if one searches out the various Messianic currents in the Old Testament and compares the resulting picture with the life and work of Christ, can one doubt that the ancient predictions pointed to Jesus and the kingdom which he, he established God, God's promise to the patriarchs that through them 
all the nations of the world would be blessed. The prediction that the tribe of Judah would be supreme among the other Hebrew tribes until the coming of him who, whom all nations would obey. Dun, dun, dun. Whom all nations would obey. The strange yet undeniable fact that in the Bible of the Alexandrian Jews, aka the Septuagint, one finds clearly predicted the virgin birth of the Messiah. Prophecy, Isaiah 53. About the patient sufferer. Suffer? He sees, he, he sees his father? Yes, patient sufferer, the SL, servant of the Lord, who will lay down his life as a guilt offering for his people's offenses. The perspectives of the glorious, everlasting kingdom of the house of David, in whom but Christ have these prophecies found their fulfillment, eh? In whom but Christ, eh? Have these prophecies found their fulfillment? From an historical point of view alone, here, here, is uniqueness which sets Christ apart from all other founders of world religions. And once the fulfillment of these prophecies did, did done, did it, check, check please, did historically take place in the person of, capital C, Christ. Not only did all prophecies cease in Israel, all right, John the Baptist being the last and greatest prophet, but there was discontinuance of sacrifices when the true PL, Paschal Lamb, was sacrificed. Did done, did it. Check, please. All right, you want to turn to some pagan testimony for a second? Sure, why not? A guy named Tacitus, T-A-C, like a tic-tac, Tacitus, speaking from the ancient Roman, says, People were generally persuaded in the truth of the ancient prophecies that the East was to prevail and that from Judea was to come the master, capital M, and capital R, ruler of the world. People were generally persuaded in the faith of the ancient prophecies that the East was to prevail and that from Judea 
was to come the master and ruler of the world, period, unquote. Sutanius, S-U-E-T-O-N-I-U-S, Sutania, in his account of the life of Vespasian, Vespasian, recounts the Roman tradition thus, quote, it was an old and constant belief throughout the West that by indubitably certain prophecies, the Jews were to attain the highest power, period, unquote. China had the same expectation, but because it was on the other side of the world, it believed that the great W.M., wise man, would be born in the West. The annals, meaning the documents of the, the annual documents of the, the, the kept by the, the king, the A-N-N-A-L's, the annals of the celestial empire, capital A, capital C, capital E, the annals of the celestial empire contain this statement, quote, in the 24th year of Chikau Wang, of the dynasty of the Chichau, of the Chao, in the eighth day of the fourth moon, a light appeared in the southwest, which illuminated, illumined the king's palace. Ah, the monarch, struck by its splendor, interrogated the sages. They showed him books in which this prodigy signified the appearance of the great saint of the West, whose religion was to be introduced into their country. The Greeks expected him. The Greeks? Yes. For A-E-C... No, I'm sorry. A-E-S-C-H-Y-L-U-S. Aeschylus. Aeschylus. In his book Prometheus. Six centuries before his coming wrote, quote, Look not for any end, moreover, to this curse until God appears. To expect upon his head the pangs of thy own sins, vicarious. <gasps> There's that word, vicarious. One more time. Look not for any end, moreover, to this curse until God appears. To accept Upon his head, the pangs of thy own sins, vicarious. What about the wise men? How did the mage of the East know of his coming? Probably from the many prophecies circulated through the world by the Jews, as well as through the prophecy made to the Gentiles by Daniel, 
centuries before his birth. Cicero, C-I-C-E-R-O, after recounting the sayings of the ancient oracles and the sibyls, S-I-B-Y-L-S, symbols, sibyls, sibyls, about a, quote, king whom we must recognize to be saved. King whom we must recognize to be saved, unquote. Asked in expectation, quote, to what man and to what period of time do these predictions point, unquote. The fourth Eclugie of Virgil recounted the ancient, the same ancient tradition and spoke of, quote, a chaste woman smiling on her infant boy with whom the Iron Age would pass away. Mm. With whom the Iron Age would pass away. A chaste woman smiling on her infant boy. Uh, if that ain't the answer, I don't know what is. With whom the Iron Age would pass away. Oh, yeah? Zirak? Zirak, which no man has. Right? Oh, yeah. Shiltonias? Shiltonias quoted a contemporary author to the effect that the Romans were so fearful about a king who would rule the world that they ordered all children born that year to be killed. An order that was not fulfilled except by Herod. Not only were the Jews expecting the birth of a great king, a wise man, and a savior, but Plato and Socrates also spoke of the Logos and of the universal wise man, quote, yet to come, unquote. Confucius spoke of the, quote, the saint, with a capital S, unquote. And the Sibyls spoke of, quote, the universal king, unquote. The Greek, the Greek dramatist says of a savior and redeemer to unloose, unloose me, to unloose man from the, quote, primal eldest curse, period, unquote. Primal eldest cursed. Curse. Yeah, like the one I'm going through right now, like once a month, people. How do you know you're a woman? You understand what I just said. All right. If you don't know what I just said, you're not a woman. All right. Confusion over? I hope so. You don't bleed once a month, you're not a woman. 
You haven't ever believed once a month in your life. You're not a woman. You're no womb. The womb is what is bleeding. You're not bleeding because you have no womb. Therefore, you're not a womb. You're just a man. You're not a womb of a man. Get it? Got it? Do you have it? Did you ever have it? Did you get it removed? Did you have to get it removed? My mother did. I got infected after my birth. That's why she couldn't have another one. Yeah, okay, whatever. All these were on the Gentile side of the expectation. What separates Christ from all men is that first he was expected. Even the Gentiles had a longing for a deliverer or redeemer, whatever you call it. I don't care. They need... they. They had a longing. This fact alone distinguishes him from all other religious leaders. I had a longing. Someone to watch A second distinguishing fact is that once he appeared, he struck history with such impact that he split it in two, T-W-O, <laughs> dividing it into two periods. Oh, my, wow. Periods, two periods, colon. <laughs> One, uh-huh, before his coming, B.C., the other, after it, A-D-E, who's your daddy, who's your domini, oh yeah, you better say it. Buddha did not do this, did not do this, nor any of the great, capital I, Indian philosophers, even those who deny God must date their attacks upon him, must date, D-A-T-E, first date, their attacks upon him. Oh, first time for everything. A-D, A-D-D-D-D. 
There's a TV series that's got two seasons under its belt. You gotta just go watch it. It's called AD, The Bible. It's actually a movie. It's on Blu-ray and DVD. I got it. All right, just go watch it. It's one of my favorite portrayals of Peter. I love him. Barnabas is in there. Everybody's in there, John. Everybody, everybody. Just go. Everybody. So and so, or so many years after his coming, right? A third fact separating him from all the others is this. Every other person, whoever came into this world, came into it to live. What? Never ever said that before. Yeah, because he came into it to die. Yeah, nothing to give you some contrast. Everybody came in here to live. You've never met anybody who didn't want to live. Have you ever met somebody who came to live to die? <laughs> Death was a stumbling block to Socrates. It interrupted his teaching, but to Christ. Death was a goal and fulfillment of his life. Ah, check, please. Did done, did it. <sighs> Last meal. What my put my napkin, fold it nicely, put it down. The gold, G-O-L-D, that he was seeking. Few of his words or actions are intelligible without reference to his cross. Right? He's always he presented himself as a savior rather than merely, merely as a teacher. It meant nothing to teach men to be good unless he also gave them the power to be good. Oh, oh you forgot you had no... <laughs> right, you need a key to start the car, but then you need gas. <laughs> okay, six bucks a gallon. No, thank you. I ain't fixing that piece of metal. After rescuing them, like, maybe I should rescue, like, I don't know, some gold or, like, I don't know, recycle the thing. I don't know. When you can't drive, it's just a paperweight. <laughs> a big and expensive paperweight. <laughs> What's it holding down? The tarmac. <laughs> He represented himself as a savior rather than merely as a teacher. It meant nothing to teach men to be good unless he also gave them the power to be good. Oh, Holy Spirit, come to me when beneath my wings fly. I can't do it. <laughs> Somewhere, somebody's ear just popped, <laughs> and the cat fell off the fence. Okay, <laughs> thank you for rescuing my audience. After rescuing, gave them the power to be good. After rescuing them from the frustration of guilt. Oh yeah, my mother just wanted to keep me there. Oh, frustration of guilt. Oh, Mama Mary. Mama Mia, rescue me. Rescue me and put me in your arms. Rescue me and do your tender charms. 
You know I need you in my arms. Uh-uh-uh. I'd love to come on and rescue me. Come on, baby, and rescue me. Nine one one. Hello. I got a song in my head. <laughs> and then he starts singing too. Come on, baby. <laughs> the story of every human life begins with birth and ends with death. Story. Once upon a time. The end. <laughs> That's the two things you're guaranteed, people. The two things you're guaranteed in this life. If you made it, is life and death. Everything else, gravy. <laughs> in the person of Christ, however, it was his death that was first and his life that was second. Hmm. It was his death that was first and his life that was second. I'm sorry, last. What? It was his death. <laughs> sorry, let me get my earwax out. That was first. Okay, it was his death that was first and his life that was last. Okay, got it. The scripture describes him as, quote, the lamb, capital L, the big L, slain. Loser. He lost. We lost him. We killed him. The big L. The lamb slain. Use, abuse, and lose. Use, abused. Use, abused, and lose. The lamb slain, as it were, from the beginning of the world, period. He was slain in intention by the first sin and rebellion against God. It was not so much that his birth cast a shadow on his life and thus led to death. It was rather that the cross was first and cast its shadow back to his birth. <gasps> Oh, wow. Thank you for completing that imagery for me. I always wondered about that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Fulton. Fulton Sheen, everybody. Fulton Sheen. It's the Sheen. His has been the only life in the world that was ever lived backwards. Ah, that's why I like to do things backwards. Thank you. Thank you. That explains so much. As the flower in the crannied wall tells the poet of nature, and as the atom, 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 A-T-O-M, <clears throat> Adam, atom, 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 Adam, whatever. Om, dong, om, As the atom is the miniature of the solar system, so too, T-O-O, his birth tells the mystery of the Here's a new word for you. Gibbet. Gibbet. Give it to me. G-I-B-B-E-T. Really? Yes. 
Gibbet. Yeah. New word. Go look it up. He went from the known to the known. From the reason of his coming manifested by his name, quote, Jesus, unquote, or, quote, Savior, unquote, to the fulfillment of his coming, namely his death on the cross. I see. He went from the known Jesus to the known. Oh, Savior. Fulfilled. The, the, the name says it all, right? Yeah, you get it? All right. He's a hero in the movie, so what do you expect, right? The whole movie, you know something, right? You know, you, almost, you could almost... Write the whole movie after you've seen so many. John gives us his eternal pre-history. Ah, okay. The book of the Gospel of John gives us his eternal pre-history. Got it. Interesting. Matthew gives us his temporal pre-history. Oh, okay. Eternal prehistory, let's go see John. Temporal prehistory, go see Matthew. Okay. Or Matthias. By way of his genealogy. Ah, interesting. It is significant how much his temporal ancestry was connected with sinners and foreigners. Well, ain't that interesting. These blots on the eschion, es, it's not echelon, it's esch, escuchion, escuchion. Okay. These blots on the escuchion of his human lineage suggest a pity for the sinful and for the strangers to the covenant. All right, new word, look it up. E-S-C-U-T-C-H-E-O-N. Like a luncheon of cut meats. Escuchion. Okay, got it. Both these aspects of his compassion would later on be hurled against him as accusations. Quote, oh, he is a friend of sinners. Or, oh, he's a Samaritan. But the shadow of a stain passed. The shadow of a stained past foretells his future love for the stained. <gasps> this is Clark Kent's story. Superman. Born of a woman. He was a man and could be one with all humanity. Born of a virgin who was overshadowed by the Spirit, the capital S, the Holy Spirit, and, quote, full of grace, unquote. He would also be outside that current of sin which infected all men. 
he would be outside that current of sin, which affected all men. End of page 20 and end of page, I'm sorry, chapter 1. Awesome. A lot fun, Shane. The only person ever pre-announced. All right, any other questions? No? Very good. Very good. All right, if you be good boys and girls, I will talk to you about the early life of Christ. Eh? Okay, you just be good. I'll be right back. All right, I'm going to start reading this book. Life of Christ by Fulton Sheen. Oh, yeah. I have eight minutes. Let's see if I, if I can do the table of contents in eight minutes. I'm taking my break right now. I got eight minutes before I got to go back to work. Okay. Contents. Title page, dedication, forward, introduction, preface. One, the only person ever pre-announced. Two, early life of Christ. Three, the three shortcuts from the cross. Four, the Lamb of God. Five, the beginning of, quote, the hour, unquote, H-O-U-R. Six, the temple of his body. Seven, Nicodemus, the serpent, and the cross. Eight, savior of the world. Hello, anyone? Nine, the first public announcement of his death. 10, the choosing of the 12. 11, my favorite, Beatitudes. 12, my favorite number, who was a woman? Who? The intruder. 12, the intruder was a woman. Uh-huh. 13, the man who lost his head. Mm-mm-mm. Who could that possibly be? 14, the bread of life. Oh boy, I just pressed on one of the links on the table of contents and now I'm in page 95. Great. Um, I'll just reload. That bring me up to the top. No, it didn't. I gotta scroll, people. Come on. Seriously? Ah, oh, this sucks. I only have five more minutes. Oh, good. I'm on page one already. Okay. Fourteen. No, thirteen. The man who lost his head. Fourteen. The bread of life. Yay! Fifteen. The refusal to be a bread king. Hello, anyone? You wonder why he's not coming? This is why, because all we want for him to be is a king to give us bread in this world. And what did he say? I'm not of this world. Sorry, too bad. Purity and property, 17. No, sorry, that was 16. 17 is our Lord's testimony concerning himself. Don't you want to hear straight from the man talking about himself? I do. 18. This, my friends, is the huge mystery. 
the transfiguration. Oh yeah. All right, three minutes and 9% battery. Let's see if I can do this. Uh, this is reloading again. Seriously, what the heck just happened? Dude, the devil's playing with me. It just like took me to a whole nother page. What in the world is going on? <sighs> this one has been like on my journey for looking for a new job. It's just like one little thing after another. Little things that get in the way. Ay, ay, ay. I can't even find my page. I'll be back. Alright, let's just get right to the next part. Dedications. Dedicated in filial affection to Mary, the triple author. What? T-A that. First, as mother who didst give to the son of the living God a body with which he borrowed human guilt and paid back death with life. <laughs> then, uh huh, as author of these words about the word, for only in dark hours. When gall with ink did mix, she made the writer see Christ and crucifix. And last, as author, with the spirit of Christ in each reader's heart. Acting on each page as the sweet incendiary of that love we fall just short of in all love. If that wasn't the best dedication I ever heard, wow. That was page nine. Woohoo! We will be right back with the forward by Father Benedict Rochelle. No, sorry, that's my favorite chocolate. It's Go Rochelle. Okay, go, go. Forward. Forward to the new edition. The republication of Archbishop Sheen's classic work, Life of Christ, brings back memories of 60 years ago when the streets of any Catholic town or village were absolutely empty at 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoons. As a child, I used to look outside to see if anyone was in view because an 
eerie silence fell over the whole community. Everybody was listening to Archbishop Sheen on the radio. Later, when he moved on to television, he became certainly the most popular Catholic preacher in America church history. He also relentlessly attacked Bolshevik communism and Freudian psychoanalysis. Uh-huh. Many people in the intellectual community thought this was amusing, but both of these powerful movements have since gone into the dustbin of history. Meanwhile, Archbishop Sheen's beautiful meditations on life of Christ are going out in a new edition. Why? Because, although he did not ignore contemporary biblical scholarship and, in fact, relied for advice on the well-known scripture scholar Monsignor Miles Burke, B-O-R-U-K-E-M-Y-L-E-S, he, nonetheless, did not do biblical criticism. He brought the narrative of the gospel alive to the individual reader. Or listener. Or watcher. This is popular biblical theology at its very best. In his recent book, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, there's a book? Yeah, I saw the movie like a thousand times, but did you read the book? Pope Benedict the XVI, which is what? 16. Pope Benedict the 16 has issued, right? He's a teenager pope, has issued a call for a return, brain for Frank, to biblical theology. I said, Frank, do you have my, my girl in your pocket? He said, uh, what are you talking about? I said, remember the picture I gave you? St. Faustina. Oh, you mean that nun? I said, she's more than a nun, Frank. <laughs> and then we got interrupted. Whatever. What do you think I should say next time, Lord? I'll leave it to you. I pray for Frank. In all Irish, Pope Benedict the Sixteen teenager was issued a call, has issued a call for a return to biblical theology, and has given a one a powerful example of it in his own writings, the republication of Life of Christ by Archbishop Sheen is therefore extremely timely. It seems to moi that this is precisely the kind of writing that the Pope was hoping for in order to restore devotion to Christ. The Holy Father has said that as a result of the exclusive use of certain forms of scriptural criticism, the figure of Jesus has become more and more remote to many people. This is a tragedy, people. He identifies, quote, intimate friendship with Jesus, unquote, as the foundation, quote, on which everything depends, unquote, 
in Christianity. Intimate friendship with Jesus is the foundation on which everything depends in Christianity. Very few people in modern times have made a greater contribution to Catholic life or have encouraged and led the way toward intimate friendship with Jesus than Archbishop Sheen. This book we're about to read entitled Life of Christ by Archbishop Sheen could be a companion volume to the entitled Jesus of Nazareth by Pope Benedict the 16th. Oh man, you know that's on my to read list, people. Thank you, Father Benedict J. Groeschel, CFR, being featured here on the GJVINE. Javan, grooving on up. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll be right back with introductions to the new edition. Thank you. You're welcome, without a doubt. Introductions. Introduction to the new section, without a doubt. Jesus Christ is the most outstanding person in human history. Wouldn't you say? So overwhelming is he that the Western world has traditionally marked its centuries into two periods of time by the year of his birth. Hello. B.C. What does that stand for? Before Christ. And A.D. Anno Domine. Domine. Anno Domini. From the Latin, in the year of the Lord. In the year, Anno, of the Lord. Domini. Dominate me, oh yeah. Over the centuries, many have written wonderful biographies of Jesus, but very few writers can compare in their works to the late Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, many have approached their writing about Jesus in an intellectual way, trying to grasp the theological content and meaning of his life. And this is good. Others have approached it with the added desire to teach these insights. And this is better. Finally, some have approached the life of Christ in order to live fully his message of salvation. And this is best. No doubt, Archbishop Sheen belonged to this last group. Perhaps no better recommendation could be given to support the value of a religious book than to mention those who would read it. Frank did admit that he is one of those who don't know enough about the Catholic religious and what it is. So I'm reading this for you in the spirit, Frank. I'm thinking of you. The missionary of Charity Sisters told me that Mother Teresa of Calcutta always had a copy of Archbishop Sheen's Life of Christ with her. How did Archbishop Sheen come to write such a marvelous book that has inspired and enriched the lives of so many. He was, no doubt, 
a very gifted individual. His intellectual abilities were extraordinary. Though he never made any attempt to appear scholarly, besides having a doctorate in theology, he was the first American ever to win the prestigious Agragai degree from Louvain University in Belgium. He did so well on the grueling exams that when they celebrated a meal in his honor, get this, listen to this, something noteworthy happened. Okay, here's a little backdrop info to appreciate this moment. If someone just passed the aggregate exam, traditionally, water was served at the meal, the celebratory meal. If he or she did better, beer was served. If the person did very well, wine was served. Okay. Wine was served as the drink. So, what happened at Fulton Sheen's celebratory dinner? The drink of choice at the young Father Sheen's celebration meal was champagne. <laughs> he went on to receive many other distinguished awards and honorary degrees throughout his life, including the outstanding Cardinal Messier Prize for International Philosophy. Take that, Mr. Feud. The Archbishop also possessed a gift for communicating with others. Another great American evangelist, Billy Graham. Everybody hear about him. We pray for the faithfully departed. Arch, Venerable Archbishop Sheen, please pray for us. Once called him, quote, the great communicator. Not only did he maintain a listening audience of about four million people, and that was years ago, people, that's a lot, for some 20 years on his weekly radio program, four million the weekly radio program called The Catholic Hour. But he achieved phenomenal success with his television series called Life is Worth Living. Still praying for Stephen. This, his weekly live program ran for a half hour and it was intentionally placed side by side with a man who was called, quote, Mr. Television. Get that, unquote. Milton Burle, Burley, B-E-R-L-E. Those who invited Archbishop Sheen to present his television program did not think he would do very well against Milton Burley. But within six months, more people were watching the Archbishop Sheen's program more than watching Milton Burley for that first 
half hour. The Archbishop eventually reached an estimated 30 million viewers. He even won an Emmy in 1952 as the, quote, most outstanding personality on television, end quote. At the award ceremony, many before him were thanking their producers, directors, and screenwriters, but the Archbishop received his Emmy. He humorously remarked, quote, I would like to think, I would like to thank my screenwriters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> Unquote. Exclamation mark. But perhaps the quality that makes Archbishop Sheen's Life of Christ so outstanding is the fact that he was a man with a reputation for great holiness. It was one thing to understand the life and message of a person. Another thing to be able to tell others about it, but it was most significant if one can live that message, especially to an outstanding degree. This is precisely why Archbishop Sheen's life has been promoted for possible sainthood in the Roman Catholic Church. Saints are men and women who imitate Jesus Christ and live his gospel message to a heroic degree. Saints get to know the gospel from the inside, so to speak, rather than merely as outside observers. People who have read Archbishop Sheen's Life of Christ over the years have often commented that there is something powerful in his words, like a seed that is sown in the ground. His words about life and message about G uh, and, and message of Jesus have taken root in many a mind and heart and have borne great fruit in their lives. The Archbishop, uh, me included, eyewitness testimony, and my sister-in-laws who told me about him. The Archbishop once told people who have remarked that he was such a gifted speaker and writer that the real power of his words and their attractiveness to others comes from his hours of prayer, especially his prayer before Jesus in this blessed sacrament. There is no doubt that many people still experience a powerful inspiration as they read and meditate on the great insights that Archbishop that the Archbishop had into who the person of Jesus is and how he affects our lives.
In closing, I would like to share an incident that occurred toward the end of Archbishop Sheen's life. On October 3rd, 1979, Pope John Paul, yes, PJP himself II, was making his first papal visit in the United States. He came to New York City and it was met by Terence Cardinal Cook. C-O-O-K-E. Do you know? Kiss the cook. Archbishop Sheen of New York, who escorted the Pope into St. Patrick's Cathedral, when the Holy Father reached the sanctuary, he paused and looked around. Then he turned to Cardinal Cook and asked, Where is Archbishop Sheen? The Cardinal had to send his secretary to find the Archbishop, who was toward the back of the cathedral in the Mary Chapel. The Holy Father waited motionlessly. The people were wondering what was happening to cause this apparent delay. Finally, Archbishop Sheen emerged from the chapel. When the people realized that the Pope had been waiting for the Archbishop, they stood up and gave Archbishop Sheen a seven-minute standing ovation. Here was the man, after all, who had been the voice of the Catholic Church in America for some 30 years. Then Pope John Paul II went over and embraced the Archbishop, now quite frail with age and sickness. The Holy Father said to him, You have written and spoken well of the Lord Jesus. You have been a loyal son of the church. These powerful words certainly apply to Archbishop Sheen's book, Life of Christ. So, I am delighted that this true Christian classic, written by one who may someday be proclaimed a saint of the Catholic Church, is being reprinted. I am sure this book will bring great rewards to each and every person who reads it and is listening to my podcast as I read it. As the Archbishop would say, God love you. In all caps. Wow. I don't know, but I would like to get to, fa- to know Father Andrew Apostoli. I mean, you can't get a better last name than that. Apostoli, C-F-R, Vice Postulate Cause of Canonization of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Thank you very much, Father Andrew Apostoli. Thank you, Father A.A. We are at the end of page 13 
of 478 pages of the life of Christ. Thank you so much for listening. We will be right back with the preface. What do we profess with? About Satan. <laughs> we'll be right back. Chapter 1 The Only Person Ever Pre-Announced History is full of men who have claimed that they came from God, or that they were gods, or that they bore messages from God. Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Christ, Lao Tzu, and thousands of others, right down to the person who founded a new religion this very day. Each of them has a right to be heard and considered, but as a yardstick external to and outside of whatever is to be measured is needed, so there must be some permanent tests available to all men, all civilizations, and all ages by which they can decide whether any one of these claimants or all of them are justified in their claims. These tests are of two kinds, reason and history. Reason, because everyone has it, even those without faith. History, because everyone lives in it and should know something about it. Reason and history. Reason indicates that if any one of these men actually came from God, the least thing that God could do to support his claim would be to pre-announce his coming. Automobile manufacturers tell their customers what, when to expect a new model. If God sent someone from himself, or if he came himself with a vitally important message for all men, it would seem reasonable that he would first let men know when his messenger was coming, where he would be born, where he would live, the doctrine he would teach, the enemies he would make, the program he would adopt for the future, and the manner of his death. By the extent to which the messenger conformed with these announcements, one could judge the validity of his claims. Reason further assures us that if God did not do this, then there would be nothing to prevent any imposter from appearing in history and saying, quote, Ooh, I come from God, or 
an angel appeared to me in the desert and gave me this message. In such cases, there would be no objection. Historical way of testing the messenger. We would have only his word for it. And of course, he could be wrong. If a visitor came from a foreign country to Washington and said to his diplomat, the government would ask him for his passport and other documents, testifying that he represented a certain government. His paperwork would have to, and to date, right, his coming. If such proofs of identity were asked from delegates of another country, of other countries, reason certainly ought to do so with messengers who claim to come from God. To each claimant, reason says, What record was there before you were born that you were coming? With, these, with this test, one can evaluate the claimants. And at this primarily preliminary stage, Christ is no greater than others, right? Socrates had no one to t foretell his birth. Buddha had no one to pre-announce him and his message or tell the day when he would sit under the tree. Confucius did not have the name of his mother and his birthplace recorded, nor were they given to men centuries before he arrived, so that when he did come, men would know he was a messenger from God. But with Christ, it is different. It was different. Because of the Old Testament prophecies, his coming was not unexpected. There were no predictions about Buddha, Confucius, Lao Tzu, Muhammad, or anyone else. But there were predictions about Christ. Others just came and said, Oh, here I am. Believe me. Believe me. They were, therefore, only men among men, and not the divine in the human. Christ alone stepped out of that line, saying, Search the writings of the Jewish people and the related history of the Babylonians, baby. Persians, Greeks, and Romans, eh? For the moment, pagan writings and even the Old Testament may be regarded only as historical documents, not as inspired works. It is true that the prophecies of the Old Testament can be best understood in the light of their fulfillment. The language of prophecy does not have the exactness of mathematics. Yet, if one searches out the various messianic currents in the Old Testament and compares the resulting picture with the life 
and work of Christ. Can one doubt that the ancient predictions point to Jesus and the kingdom which he established? Hmm? God's promise to the patriarchs that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The prediction that the tribe of Judah would be supreme among the other Hebrew tribes until the coming of him whom all nations would obey. The strange yet undeniable fact that in the Bible of the Alexandrian Jews, the Septuagint, one finds clearly predicted the virgin birth of the Messiah. The prophecy of Isaiah 53 about the patient Suffer, the servant of the Lord, who will lay down his life as a guilt offering for his people's offenses. The perspectives of the glorious everlasting kingdom of the house of David in whom but Christ have these prophecies found their fulfillment? From a historical point of view alone here is uniqueness which sets Christ apart from all other founders of world religions. And once the fulfillment of these prophecies did historically take place in the person of Christ, not only did all the prophecies cease in Israel, but there was discontinuance of sacrifices when the true Paschal Lamb, Paschal Lamb, was sacrificed when the true Paschal Lamb was sacrificed. Go ahead. Turn to pagan testimony. Tacitus, speaking for the ancient Romans, Tacitus says, people are generally persuaded in the faith of the ancient prophecies that the East was to prevail and that from Judea was to come the master and ruler of the world. Unquote. Suetonius, in his account of the life of Vespasian, recounts the Roman tradition thus. It was an old and constant belief throughout the West that by indubitably 
certain prophecies, the Jews were to attain the highest power. Period. Unquote. China had the same expectation, but because it was on the other side of the world, it believed that the great wise man would be born in the West. And the annals of the celestial empire contain the following statement. The capital A, annals of the capital C, celestial, capital E, empire. A, C, E. I gotta look that up. I think that's the, uh, under ctext.com. Sorry, ctext.org. Quote, In the 24th year of Taichao Wang, of the dynasty of the Taichao, on the eighth day of the fourth moon, a light appeared in the southwest which illumined the king's palace. The monarch, struck by its splendor, interrogated the sages. They showed him books in which this prodigy signified the appearance of the great saint of the West, whose religion was to be introduced into their country. The Greeks expected him for Aeschylus in his Prometheus. Six centuries be in his book Prometheus, six centuries before his coming, wrote, Look not for any end, moreover, to this curse until God's appears. to accept upon his head the pangs of thy own sins, vicarious, period. Wow. How did the Magi of the East know of his coming? Probably from the many prophecies circulated through the world by the Jews, as well as through the prophecy made to the Gentiles by Daniel centuries before his birth. Cicero, after recounting the sayings of ancient oracles and the Sibyls, S-I-B-Y-L-S, about a, quote, king whom we must recognize, whom we must recognize to be saved, asked in expectation, to what man and to what period of time do these predictions point? Here's another example, the entitled The Fourth Eclogie of Virgil. Well, that's a new word. The Fourth E-C-L-O-G-U-E of Virgil, Virgil, V-I-R-G-I-L, recounted the same ancient tradition and spoke of, quote, 
a chaste woman smiling on her infant boy, with whom the Iron Age would pass away. Period. Suetonius quoted a contemporary author to the effect that the Romans were so fearful about a king who would rule the world that they ordered all children born that year to be killed, an order that was not fulfilled except by Herod. Period. Come in. Not only were the Jews expecting the birth of a great king, a wise man, and a savior, but Plato and Socrates also wrote the book entitled Logos. L O G O S. Okay, we'll be back picking it with logos. Okay. Mm-hmm. You want to say hi? Say hi. Hello. 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 We're in the middle of page 19.